Well, it's wonderful to be with you, and uh, I'm praising the Lord for uh, looking in your shining faces and seeing that you're returning the love I feel for you. (laughs) Uh, And especially, I'm blessed to have my daughter-in-law, Amy, with me tonight. Uh, She... Every mother-in-law should have a daughter-in-law like her. We complete each other's sentences. (laughs) And so it's a joy for her to be with me. And it was not easy because she had a meeting after school and broke her neck to get over here. So I appreciate it, Amy, for you being here. It's a great journey. I'm glad to have lived it. And I hope that you will, when you get 80, be glad you lived it. Um, This year I celebrated my 80th birthday and 60 years of marriage, which was a miracle of God. (laughs) Because we were not alike. Matter of fact, we've canceled out a lot of votes when we went to the polls. And we've done a lot of other canceling out, I'm sure, along the way. But it was a great celebration, and I want to tell you, uh, I praise God. It was one of the best days I think I've ever lived. Amy was a part of that and our children. And we just had the best time, and we hadn't danced in 50-something years. And the children insisted that we get out there and dance. Now, that was a scream. Uh, But I don't know whether we were doing anything worth looking at or not, but it was just a miracle that we got that done. And uh, Andy Krantz sang one of, you know, the old songs during the 50s, and it was wonderful, and I rejoiced in it. I want to tell you first... uh, what this Bible means to me. (laughs) Um, When I was a young lady, like some of you, (laughs) um, a Bible teacher said to me, Jesus is on every page of the Bible. And I thought, "Uh uh-uh. I grew up in a Baptist church, and we didn't know anything about the Old Testament much. We just believed in being saved. And that was in the New Testament. But she said, Dean, she, her name was Estelle Carver. She taught school and she taught English and she was just a marvelous lady and I loved her to death. But I want to tell you something wonderful about Estelle. She had hold this Bible when she was teaching and it just came alive. I want to tell you what she did for me. When she would take the word, it got on fire. It was like the words were burning, and I, I never had heard, I didn't know the Bible, the Scripture, the Word of God could be like that. So this is the book of Christ. This is Christ's book, and he is on every page of the Bible. And if you don't know that, I want you to dig around and find out, because it is the truth, so help me God. Uh, In the very first page, when it talks about creation, 
and how the gases are, and Amy's a biology teacher, so I don't, I'm not going to do it just right. But anyway, she'll get, she'll, when I get home, she'll tell me what's wrong with this. But in the churning gases and all of the stuff before creation and all the wonderful things that happened, there was God, and it says the Spirit was there. The Spirit is nothing but the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And how do I know that? In Colossians, it says, there's a wonderful passage. The heading is the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy. He is... He is the most important thing you'll ever hear. He is the most important part of your life when you give your life to Him. And it talks about He is the creator of everything. Everything in heaven and on earth and things that are visible and invisible. But I want to share one more phrase that comes down He holds, Jesus Christ holds everything together. That is a very important word from the Lord to me. I love that passage because it has helped me through some difficult times. They gave me a title here. It's called The Pathway to Perseverance. And then the vital, (laughs) the vitality of having faith in the midst of hardship. Um, I want to add one more phrase to the title, and it's this, don't give up. Don't give up. I, I think that's the most important word I have for you tonight. And I can say that with assurance and confidence. I don't have to pretend that I have something that I don't because Jesus Christ saved my soul. I started the kindergarten in a, what they call the cradle roll department and learned the little songs. I was a little sunbeam and, you know, Jesus loves me. And, but I didn't know who Jesus was. He sounded like a nice man. They showed me pictures and he was so sweet and held the little children. And that meant so much to me. I thought that's so sweet. But I want to tell you, I was, in 1970, something happened to me. That's a long time from being a little tiny girl. In 1970, I had an experience that radically changed my direction for life. When I, when I look at the Bible now, the words just blaze up like a mighty fire. And I realized that God has always loved me. I want to tell you, my little friends, my little children, I'll call you my children because you're all oh, so young and look so sweet. Uh, I want to tell you, the Lord loved you when you were a little girl. He loved you just like those little pictures in Sunday school. You know, he, he loved you then. And he loves you when life gets hard. He loves you no matter what. And how do I know that? My two favorite chapters, I guess, in the Bible is Isaiah 53, for one. And in Isaiah 53, I just am so stirred and moved by the words in that chapter. 
And Isaiah has the most powerful words. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I can serve a God like that. If he is acquainted with grief and knows about sorrow, then he knows about mine. And then, it, you know, these marvelous words that come next that Handel wrote in the Messiah. He said, surely, surely he has borne my grief. He has borne my grief and carried my sorrow. Now, if Jesus did that for me, I can serve him for the rest of my life as long as I live. Now, that may not be too long, but anyway, I'm telling you, I feel pretty good, so I might be sticking around for a little while. But I want to tell you, when I read those words, it's like it's a fire. If he knows my heartache, I can serve a God like that. And then in Psalm 139, I'm just, I'm so moved by that chapter that I can hardly stand it. But it says, where can we go? Where can we go from his spirit? Where can we flee from his presence? If I ascend into heaven, he's there. If I make my bed in hell, he's there. And I've been in hell on this earth. I know what hell, I think I know pretty well what it's like because I've been there. I've had troubles that were like hell. But in the midst of the hell, you know I love Corrie Ten Boom. I just love her to death, and I love that the hiding place. I've seen it ten times, know the dialogue and all that. I just think it's a most powerful story. But she says something that is worth writing down if you've never heard it before. There is a no pit. There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. You hadn't got a pit in your life that has been so deep that God's love is not deeper still. And in this chapter, it it says this. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there his hand will guide me and his right hand will hold me. Oh, to be whole, to be held by God, to have Him hold me in the midst of my heartaches and my troubles. What a security. We have the most wonderful security because it says no matter where you go, no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, God is there with His undergirding. And He will give you the love that He has for you. I'll never get over that idea. It just blesses me no end. But I want to tell you, when our oldest son died, I thought I'd quit breathing. I really did. I thought, well, I'm going to stop breathing right now. How can I live in a world without him? How can I stand it another minute? But I didn't die. I did not die. I have lived another 56 years since that day.
And so as I stand here and witness to my faith, I can tell you, you can make it. Don't give up. Don't lose hope. No matter what you're going through. Those were days that I didn't think I could make it. But only by the grace of God, he gave me the strength to go on. Now, I have arrived at this old age with a marvelous, crazy sense of humor. If I did not have the joy of the Lord, I couldn't make it another day. I get tickled at the craziest things. I want to tell you something interesting. I have brought a cross. It's called the Clinging Cross. It was given to me by my dear friend, Tony Barkley. Tony has experienced the greatest heartache. His wife is in a nursing home with Alzheimer's, and he goes to see her all the time. And he brought it to me one day, and he said, Dean, when life gets tough, he said, I know it's just a piece of wood. I'm perfectly aware that there's no power in this little piece of wood. But when I hold on to it, I'm holding on to the cross of Jesus. Because, you see, when I read in the Bible, For God so loved the world that he gave his Son for me, for me, a sinner, and has saved me, redeemed me from my sins, I hold on to the cross. And so I love this clinging cross. Now, let's digress to something funny. I love Tony. He loves me. He calls me Sister Dean. And I don't call him Brother Tony, but anyway, he loves to call me Sister Dean. He said to Walter there about two weeks ago, I want to take Dean to a Mexican restaurant. Walter said, okay, sure. Anyway, I kind of felt a little, uh, you know, funny, a little funny. And he had, Walter said, you want to go? I said, sure. I don't. And then I, the more I thought about it, Tony's going to come in a car, pull up to my front door, and he's going to open the door, and I'm going to get in the car, and the two of us are going on a date. <laughs> well, maybe nobody will see us then, I thought. We'll zip in that Mexican restaurant and we'll eat our hot whatever we're going to eat because both of us just love hot food and Walter despises it. So, so we go in the Mexican restaurant and sit down. I thought, whew, nobody saw me. And I get in there. Now, I'm 80 years old, girls. I, I, I sit in there and I thought, nobody will see me. So help me, God, this is the truth. I put my hand on the Bible. My, my nephew, my niece, and her dear friend and their little children came to the table and said, Aunt Dean, how are you? I said, I'm just fine. And they looked at Tony. I didn't say nothing. What you going to say? I'm sitting in a restaurant with a man that's not Walter. Obviously, the girl knows that's not her uncle. And I'm sitting there with old Tony. And, we, and I thought, oh, God. So anyway, I said, well, and she's a blabbermouth. She tells everything, and she's on Facebook. 
She loves Facebook. We get so many Facebook things from her until we're just about crazy. We're just going to delete her soon and call it spam. But she tells everything and sends thousands of pictures of our little children. And we just think, good grief, and I could see it. There must have been a camera on that girl. And she took my picture. I'm just sure she took my picture. There I'm sitting there, and I think, oh, God, please help me. Let me ease out of this restaurant. Well, we got out, and Tony says, is there anywhere you want to go before we go home? I said, well, I'd like to go to the flea market. I'm looking for something. And so we went over to, where was it? I, I can't remember that, East, uh, Eastbrook. So we get out of the car. And I wanted to scoot in there real fast, and lo and behold, a woman that sings in this choir. I will not call her name. And she says, well, hi, what are y'all doing here? And Tony says, well, we're having a date. I want to tell y'all, girls, life gets interesting. Even when you're 50, you can have some interesting experiences. I don't know who else knows it in the world, but I might as well go ahead and tell you that it happened. So when you hear it, she repented of her sins. She got on her knees and said, Lord, I'm heartily sorry for going out with Tony and I'll never do it again. Well, I didn't say that. I, I, I kind of like the guy, so I may, I may go again sometime. But I want to tell you, old Tony is suffering. And he hurts. He loved Kathy, his wife. He loved, loves her with all of his heart. And he misses her. And every day, sometimes twice a day, he goes to the nursing home and he's clinging to Jesus. So when my son died, I had nowhere else to go but to cling to Jesus. And he got me through it. But what I want to tell you before we turn to, by the way, we're going to get to that Second Corinthians 4 in just a minute. But I want to tell you one more story. And since Amy is here, it'd be a good night for me to tell it. In 1968, we went to Nashville. And I grew up poor. When you grow up poor, you, I had a, a widow for a mother. My daddy died when I was seven, and we eked out a living. We didn't have a lot of stuff. I had hand-me-down clothes from my sister. Whatever she cast away, mother cut it down, and it was mine. I didn't have a coat of my own until I was probably 15, it was the grandest coat, had red lining. It was the most beautiful coat I'd ever seen. It probably cost twelve ninety five, but it was a great coat. But it was mine. It was bought for me. And so I grew up that way. And so in nineteen sixty eight when we moved to Nashville, well, next crazy thing in my life, I married a preacher. The first year we were in the ministry, we made $1,900 a year. Think about it. I'm talking serious. $1,900 a year. We only lived because the people in the congregation brought meat, vegetables, whatever they had left over. (laughs) They would bring it to us. And we survived. The well went dry. I lost a baby. During that time, by miscarriage, 
life was tough. It was tough. But I want to tell you, when we went to Nashville in 1968, I came alive. Walter said, you can buy a house. And by golly, I said, I will. I saw this house. I fell in love with it. I wanted it. I got it. Because he wanted to make me happy. So he, it was too much. We couldn't afford it. But I said, well, you never have given me anything much anyway. You might as well buy me this house. So he did. And, the, and I started right in buying antique furniture. Furnishing it with, I love antique furniture. I don't know why I had so much old stuff. But anyway, I love antique. I like good antique furniture. Rhonda, you know what I mean. (laughs) When you decorate, you know you want to look for that good stuff. And I was searching all the time. And about a year went by. One morning I got up and Steve, Amy's husband, was four years old and had a rash. Walter said, you need to take him to the doctor. I said, okay. Now, we had lived in Nashville the first time when David died. He died there. Then we went back to Alabama, West Florida Conference, and, you know, he was in the ministry for a while. And then we went back while he was working for the Methodist Publishing House. So we had a little bit more money. And so I said, okay, I'll take him to the doctor. I went in to the same building, the same waiting room, and I think perhaps the same humpty dumpty magazines on the table where we found out our son David had leukemia. And all of a sudden I thought, I've been here before. I've done this. Lord, you're not going to let me do it again. So I went in, sat down. Dr. Wilkerson called us and he said, Well, I don't know what the rash is, but I'm sending you to a pediatric surgeon. He said, I I think there's something wrong, terribly wrong. Steve was born with a deformity of the sternum bone. had a sink in the sternum. It had not detached from the spine. And I said, okay. So we went to see Dr. George Holcomb. He was a pediatric surgeon, a well-known and well-respected in the medical field. We were there, of course, with Vanderbilt Hospital and all of that. So he, he took x-rays and did all of the stuff. He sent Steve out into the waiting room to be with the receptionist. And he called me in and he said, Miss Albritton, I don't know how to tell you this, but your son has a curvature of the spine. There's pressure on the lungs. He cannot breathe well. But mainly, he has a misplaced heart. I thought, how far can a heart be misplaced? Who ever heard of misplacing a heart? And he said, if I had seen your son when he was one, I would have recommended radical chest surgery. He's four. And he said, my recommendation is that I can set up surgery. It was a Thursday afternoon. Monday morning, if you can be at the hospital at 5 o'clock with your boy, we will do what they call a pectus excavatum correction. Whoever heard of such? 
in Alabama, we don't talk like that. And so I, I thought, what in the world? You know, and, and so he said, you can make up your own mind, but it's a matter of life and death. He will not live unless he has it. So I went home to that old house that I loved. And I, I told Walter, I said, I couldn't even tell him. I said, Walter, take the boys in the den and let me be by myself for a minute. He said, okay. So I went in, in the living room. I was so proud of an early Victorian dresser that I had it by the front door. Now, you know I'm pretty country, you know, if you got the dresser in the front of the house. But I was proud of it. It had three layers of marble. It's a gorgeous piece of furniture. And I looked around at all the, the stuff I had bought, all the pieces that I was proud of. And in my pathway was an early Victorian sofa, ornate, beautiful, covered in velvet, it was gorgeous. And I went over to that sofa and fell on my knees before God. I said, oh God, I'm so sorry. Sweet Jesus, come right now. I'm so sorry. I, I, I repent. I'm heartily sorry for this mess I'm in. I've spent money I didn't have. I've got stuff I didn't need. And all I want right now is for you to save my boy. Oh, Lord Jesus, come in your mighty power right now and help me. And in those moments, I heard this wonderful sound of the Lord speaking to me. There was a power in the late afternoon. There was electricity in the room. And he said, oh, my child, you have let these things be your treasure. You have let this stuff be your treasure. You have forgotten me in the midst of seeing all this stuff that you wanted. And then he said, wherever your treasure is, you will find your heart. I knew in those moments that it was not my child's heart that was so misplaced, but mine, my heart, my heart was misplaced. And I said, Jesus, I give it to you. Everything I got, I give it to you now. I don't want it anymore. I went over to that early Victorian dresser and put my hand down on the cold marble. And I said, you're not speaking to me. You're not saying a mumbling word. I thought you were everything I wanted, but I don't want you anymore. On Monday morning, we got up and went to Baptist Hospital, and Steve was in surgery for almost eight hours. He went down in medical history. They cut out his sternum, took out ribs, rebuilt his sternum. The most radical piece of surgery you ever did hear. A doctor had told us one time, don't ever have that surgery. He said, the only time I ever fainted was when I saw I was in the room when they were doing it. It's the most ghastly, blood, bloody piece of work you've ever heard of. And my child was having it. 
I want to tell you all something as best I can. <laughs> when they ask me to talk about the pathway of perseverance, and you, you hear words like perseverance and endurance, during those days, I want to tell you that those words are dreary, sad. But what Jesus said, I want to be your strength. I will give you the desires of your heart. The doctor came out and he said, Mr. and Ms. Albritton, I want to tell you, your child's heart is now back in place. And I wanted to say, not only my child's heart, but mine. I've never changed from those days. I've never changed from those days because I gave everything I had to Jesus. And he has given it back to me a hundredfold. He's given me the joy of life. He's given the reason to get up in the morning. He's given me the power to live. And you say, well, you probably didn't have any more trouble. Oh, I've had plenty. I've had plenty. But I want to tell you these passages in Second Corinthians, uh, Corinthians 4. If you just turn to a moment, I just want to uh, run through a few Paul says, therefore, therefore, what is he saying therefore for? It, therefore means something has preceded this thing he wants to say in chapter 4. He has got some words in chapter 3 that move us deeply. He said, because there's such a great hope, such a great hope, that is verse whatever. I don't know what it is. I can't see too good right now. But in chapter uh, 3, therefore, in chapter and verse 12, therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. What a powerful statement. Since we have such a great hope in Jesus Christ, we can be bold. I want to tell you at age 80, I'm bold. I have nothing to hide. I have, I'm not, go, I have an, a hidden agenda. I don't, there's nothing you can learn about me that I wouldn't be willing to tell you anyway. And, you know, you'd say, oh, I knew you back when you were a sinner. I'm a sinner saved by Christ. I am a sinner saved by grace. Oh, yes, I was a sinner. If you say you're not a sinner, you're a liar. <laughs> and I'm not a liar. I'm telling you I was a sinner saved by grace. And he has given me such salvation and such a hope in him. So all this is preceding the therefore. The ver therefore comes after these words where it talks about how beautifully, he says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. By golly, if you want to underline that one in red, do so now because freedom is a wonderful thing. You're free. You're free indeed because I have been given of my, my sins. I have, I'm living a life filled with hope and joy. And I want to tell you, one of my favorite verses, I told the girls 
And when we were praying for tonight, I said, one of my favorite verses is in Proverbs seventeen twenty-two: A merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit drieth up the bones. I don't want a broken spirit. I want to have a, the joy of the Lord in me. I want to be able to be bold. I want to go out and tell people there's hope. Don't give up. There is hope for whatever you're going through. And I believe that with all my heart. I want to tell you the therefore is important. But then what comes next? He says, God's mercy is helping me to have a ministry. Paul here is sort of continuing his philosophy of ministry, his personal philosophy of ministry. He's saying, because God has given me mercy, I can have a ministry. You might say, well, Miss Dean, I had not got a ministry. Oh, yes, you have. You ask God what it is. Yours may be different from mine, but you've got a ministry on the virtue of coming to Jesus. When you came to Jesus, you got a ministry. Because when Jesus was going up to heaven and leaving this world, he said to his disciples there, and this has never been rescinded. There's nothing that says anywhere that this has been changed. Go. Make witnesses of everybody, everywhere, all over the world. So what is your strategy for ministry? What, what are you doing as you try to serve him? So the therefore is important because he says, after this, therefore, here we are. Now, there are several things before I won't go through all of these seven things, but I want to tell you something. There is a phrase that I've underlined in red that says, By setting forth the truth plainly. Amy and I don't, we talk straight. We don't mince words. We have, we have a good relationship because we don't hide anything. We talk straight. How you feel, Amy? Well, I don't feel so good. How do you feel? Well, I don't feel so good. We talk straight. We mean what we say. We mean what we say when we talk to each other. And that makes for intimacy. It makes for a relationship. In this group, we'll come into church. You are in this sanctuary on Sunday morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm just fine. Thank you. How are you? I'm just fine. Thank you. And you leave this place never knowing that somebody's heart is broken. And you don't know what it is. I want to tell you, if we don't do anything else tonight, I want you to hear me. In church, we need to love each other and be willing to hear the heartaches of each other. When you sit in a congregation or a group like this, there are people in this room that are hurting who have problems. They're different. Mine's different from yours. Yours is not mine. But while we have life, we have an opportunity to bless each other and care about how you're hurting. Get busy with a ministry, whatever it is. What is your strategy for sharing your faith? And then I want to talk about verse 4. 
The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, blinded the eyes. That's what his strategy is. He wants to blind people. He wants to tell them, well, it's no nothing in this book that's really the truth. You don't really believe all that garbage, do you? You don't really believe that Jesus died for your sins, do you? You don't really believe that you can have the power of the Holy Spirit and live life victoriously. In the second chapter, first verse 14, it says, <laughs> praise God. It says, be, oh, it starts out, uh, so somebody tell me what it, first verse, what is it? 14, second chapter. There, what? I can't hear. Okay. Let, all right. Thanks be to God. I couldn't think of that. Thanks be to God who always leads, always, always, it means all the time, leads us then to what? Leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. Christ is our leader. Christ is our guide. There's a marvelous little poem that says, O Christ of the upward way, my God divine, where thou hast placed thy feet, may I place mine. I want to follow him. I want to be precision. But Habakkuk says it even better. He he says, the strength of the Lord. The Lord is my strength. And this is what he says next. I will give you the feet of the deer. And and because you're going to have climbing feet, I will enable you to reach the heights. Do you have any desires, hopes, dreams? Are you thinking about anything? Listen, you you know, some people spend their whole lives doing things that aren't worth doing anyway. And end up like my grandpa in his deathbed. He said, oh, Sarah, that was my mother. Oh, Sarah, if I just had my life to live over, I would be different. Here's an old man about to die of cancer. What a pitiful time in, in your life to come to that place and say, oh, if I just had, you don't have your life to live over. While you're young and while you've got vitality, do whatever God wants you to do. Don't wait till you get old as me and say, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm heartily sorry for my life. I'm so sorry that I didn't do this and that and the other. If you want to paint, paint. If you want to sing, sing. If you want to write, write. Whatever it is God wants you to do with the talents he's given you, do it. Don't sit around and say and waller in self-pity and say, well, there's nobody cares, nobody. Listen, I, I wanted to be a painter one time. Gosh, I think I had a dream, but then I ended up with all these young'uns. And now I got 12 grandkids and I got six great-grandchildren. I ain't got time to paint. I bought me some oils at Christmas time. They were on sale over somewhere. And I bought the oils and, they, and the boards... You know, when the first time I met this girl, <laughs> she was in the fifth grade in Demopolis. 
And they asked me, because I'd been trained a little bit in art, they said, well, Ms. Albritton, will you come over here and, and be a judge in the art contest for the elementary school? And so, like I knew what I was doing, I went over there and I looked around at all the different kinds of, there was collages and there was oil and there was charcoal and this and that and the other. So I told the three ladies that were with me, I said, well, this, this Amy Baxley, she wins them all. And she said, they said, well, Ms. Albritton, we can't have but one winner in each category. I said, well, hers are definitely the best. And they said, well, you got to make a we got to make a decision. What? we got to do something because we can't give her everything. So after the time, and they decided which one they wanted to give her a prize for, they introduced me to Amy. And she's the cutest little old girl you ever did see. And I was thinking, she just had a gift. And she's put it aside. She hadn't done it. You ought to get busy and do something. <laughs> it's time, sister. It's time for you to get busy and paint some more. But I loved her work. I bet every one of you have a dream. You want to play the piano? Go get some lessons. Try it. You won't know till you try. But I tell you, life is moving fast. And before you know it, you're going to be my age and wish to God you had done some of the things that you should have done. It doesn't matter whether anybody likes it or not. You know, don't you love that song that, uh, oh, somebody help me, (laughs) which says, (laughs) let me see if I can think. Sing, sing a song, sing out loud. You don't want to hear me sing, I know. Not good enough. Everyone has been dear. Sing, sing a song. Hey, <laughs> we got we got a singer. What's the rest of it? I can't remember. <laughs> but isn't that a good song? Don't worry if it's not good enough, and everybody's not bragging on you and saying, "Oh, isn't she special?" Just. Just do it. But life is immensely worth living. And I, I just, oh, what time is it, Lana? Is it time to quit? We want to have a little, is it time? What? <laughs> well, I'm not going to take that long. I could, I could go on and on. You know how long-winded people can be sometimes. But I want to look at what I think is probably... Well, I want to add one more phrase on that score about the devil. The greatest weapon to come against the devil is the power of the Holy Spirit. He's got power. If you don't think there's a Satan in this world, i got news for you. He's roaring around trying to devour you and try to help you believe that you can't do anything and you are not worth anything. That's what he's trying to do. He is deceptive. He's a liar. And he does not want you to succeed. But the only weapon we have is the power of the Holy Spirit. When I have, I feel like somebody's come in my door and the hairs on my arm are standing up and the hair on the back of my head is standing up. You know what I'm saying? 
in the name of Jesus and the power by the power that I feel by the Holy Spirit out. I cast him out of my house. I will not allow that to be in my house long. I want it out the door. And when I feel him trying to put me down and trying to make me feel miserable, I say, get thee behind me, Satan. I belong to Jesus, and I am going to live for him. And so you can just march right out that door. We had this lovely lady in one of our churches, and she was dying of cancer. And we went to see her. And she said, preacher, come in. I want to tell you something. Today the devil came in and sat on the foot of my bed. And we said, oh, really? He did, she said. He sat right there on the foot of my bed. And I said, I think you're trying to take my joy. You're trying to help me to believe that I don't believe in Jesus. And Jesus is not real or I wouldn't be dying of cancer. You're trying to tell me that I have lived a wasted life because I have loved Jesus. And I say to you, devil, you see that door? You just march right out that door because I love Jesus and I'm ready to be with him. Oh, she was looking forward to being seeing Jesus face to face. When I think about that, one friend said to me one time, have you thought... Dean, do you ever stop and think that we'll see Jesus? We'll see Jesus face to face. I can hardly stand it. Oh, what a joy it's going to be. We're going to see him in all of his glory. And he's going to look at us and say, well, you got here. (laughs) You made it. And he's going to love you and he's going to put his arms around you and welcome you home. And it's going to be marvelous. But I want to tell you, there is a powerful thing. And I think it is the fifth thing. No, I want to move down. I'm going to move a little further down to number five, six. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. I never get far from this thought. I think the older you get, you, you, you're clinging to, to the hope that you feel in Jesus. Oh, Lord Jesus, I can never... That's why... It says, do this in remembrance of me. We come here and we take communion. Why? We say, this is his body. This is his blood. We take it to remind ourselves that his blood was spilled for us. We come here once a month, which is not enough, but we bow down and in remembrance of him and what he did for us, For a little while, we remember the price that was paid for our salvation. For just a little while. Then we walk out the door, we throw the cracker and the juice in our mouth and go out the door and go to lunch and forget it. That's why Jesus said, keep doing it. Keep on doing it. Why does he want you to pray? He wants you to pray so that you can remember that you are praying. Listen, he's interceding for you up there. Don't that just stir you that Jesus is praying for me? 
He's praying for you. He's praying for you. He's praying that you will have a wonderful life filled with joy no matter what. Now, I'm going to close with something. I wish we had hours and hours to talk about. What a, what a blessed. But I, I want to close with one little sentence. I really don't know how to even say it. But God is looking for broken people who have come to the end of themselves. What does that mean? It means that you've given up all of your (laughs) stupid desires. Like I gave up that house and that furniture because it was standing in the way of me serving my Jesus. Oh, I didn't. Not everybody has to sell the house. Don't think I'm telling you go sell your house and your furniture. That's, but that was my problem, you see. I don't know what your problem is. I don't know what you need to get rid of. But anything that is standing in the way of you serving Christ, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Because, you see, when we are broken, <laughs> I tell you, I don't even know how to tell you how I feel about this subject. But I want to tell you, when you are broken and spilled out, you've surrendered everything. All to Jesus, I surrender. When you are broken and spilled out, then He can use you beautifully, wonderfully. But you must surrender to Him. He can't use a vessel that has not been cracked. Why? Why is, does it say that? A cracked vessel shows the world that there's a treasure inside. And I want to tell you, my friends, when trouble comes, the world will know whether you got that treasure or not. When trouble comes and you don't have that treasure, they'll know it. You can, you can fool some of the people some of the time. You, but you can't feel, fool all the people all the time, whatever that thing says. But I want to tell you, you can, you can give him everything you've got. And in these cracked pots that we are, I want to tell you, I've been cracked so many times. I've, I've been on my face in humility, in heartache, in sorrow. I I feel led to maybe tell that little story this morning about the little baby. Um, When we were in Demopolis, let me just tell you about a little short day in the life of the Methodist preacher's family. I was in the kitchen doing what I always do, cooking. Had four sons, big husband, trying to stir the pots. And the phone rang. And it was my friend June, and she said, oh, Dean, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I just saw Kate's mother, and she told me, and I'm so sorry. I said, what did she tell you? And she hollered and hung up the phone in my face. And I thought, okay, I know what she wants to tell me. Kate was a cute little majorette. And, and was dating my son, Mark, who was the best-looking kid in school, 
And they were the cutest little tricks you've ever seen. But she started gaining weight. And I thought, that's odd. She's a little old tiny thing. She's gaining weight. And I knew instantly. I knew what it was. You got good sense, you do too. She's pregnant. I thought, oh God. So here I am, stirring the pot. But under my kitchen are plumbers working on the plumbers' blinds under there. And I thought, well, I better not scream because that would cause <laughs> distress for the men under the floor. But I want to tell you something. I was about ready to scream. So I sat down and I said, oh, God. My son, Mark, 17, his little 17-year-old girlfriend, cutest thing you ever did see, is pregnant. Now what am I going to do? About that time, our 19-year-old son, who was big and husky and strong and lively, came rushing in the house. He didn't want to go to school. He was working in a cement factory, and he was (laughs) making lots of money. He was making lots of money and wanted a big car, and he wanted to do things his way. He said, no, he don't want to go to school. I'm making too much money. So we get in this situation. He comes dashing in, goes up because you've got to pull your clothes off very fast if you work at the cement factory or you'll be a, a statue. <laughs> so he was dashing to take off of his clothes, and the doorbell rings, and I'm still hysterical over the previous telephone call. And I shake myself and try to be my charming, wonderful self and go to the door and two policemen are standing there. They said, Ms. Albritton, we've come to talk to Matt. And I said, oh, well, come in. And I wanted to be lovely and charming. And, and he's, they said, we're, we have come to investigate a hit-and-run accident. I thought that meant a body on the side of the road. I thought somebody was dead on the side of the road. And I said... Matt. And he comes dashing down the steps, tripping as happy as you've ever seen. The policeman, they say, he says, hi. And they say, we want to take you to the police station. And then we're investigating an accident. So in the midst of that, I call the church. And I tell the secretary, in no uncertain terms, tell Walter to come home now. I don't care what he's doing, what he's busy doing. It just so happened he was talking to a lady who tried to blow a stomach out of her body and was still alive. And he was doing the counseling. But he had to leave that dear soul and come to a poorer soul that was at his parsonage. So here I am, pregnant girlfriend, hit and run accident, and I start crying very loud and the men came out from under the house and left (laughs) because I am just about screaming my head off. I'm going to die right here. And then the doorbell rings again and I'm not charming anymore. (laughs) I go to the door and it's June. She said, I just came to sit in the corner and pray. I said, go on in. So she gets in the corner, and she doesn't want to say a word. She just wants to sit and pray. So June's in the corner praying. Matt's gone to the police station. we got a pregnant girlfriend. 
And in walks Mark and Kate looking charming and lovely and happy as if nothing had happened. I was fixing to kill them right there. And, and so I said, don't, don't, don't do that. Don't act so charming and lovely and happy because we've got a problem. Well, we, won't get, we love each other and we're going to get married anyway. Yeah, okay. So in a little while, the police bring Matt back and he comes tripping in as if nothing was wrong. He said, they're investigating a red truck that had been hit by a friend of his and the owner was very mad and wanted to know who had done it. So that's what they wanted Matt for. It wasn't a body. I said, okay, we got that settled. And then we say to Mark and Kate, go to the Presbyterian preacher's house and get counseling because we weren't adequate for the task. How are we going to counsel our own son whose little darling girlfriend is pregnant? So here I am in the midst of this. Two or three days later, Walter marries the little charming couple. And we said... Okay, we weren't kicking anybody out. We were going to try to love them in spite of everything. And Matt, during those days, decided he'd join the Navy and see the world. He thought it was a better place than the cement factory. And so he decided he'd do that. And Mark, in the midst of all this trouble, decided he'd join the Air Force. So a few days later, I had what I call the Last Supper. And I, we all gathered around the table, the other two boys, Matt, Mark, the little pregnant girlfriend, Walter and I, and there was not a lot of laughter. It was, not, it, was a, it was a sad occasion. It was like somebody had just died, and I, I thought it was me. So we told Tim and Steve to take the two boys to Montgomery, put... Mark on a plane from San Antonio for basic training. Matt on a bus to go to Orlando for basic training. And after they all left, Walt in this pitiful little voice said, Will you come and help me take out the leaves of the table? We won't need them anymore. (laughs) And I said, That's it. And I fell apart, start crying, and he starts crying. And we cried till we couldn't cry anymore. Now, I want to tell you, you say, well, sister, why are you hopeful? With that much trouble, you ought to just go out and shoot yourself. I mean, how how can you be hopeful? I'll tell you why. Let me tell you why. Matt stayed in the Navy 10 years, came back home, went to Gunner Air Force Base, was a computer programmer. And in those few days he was home, our nephew was tragically killed. And Matt was best friends with his cousin. We went to the funeral for Dee Williams. And in the service, five or six men got up and testified about the wonderful man that Dee Williams was. He was a marvelous man of God. He went to the motel with his workers and he prayed with them and taught them Bible lessons. And they got up one after the other and testified how much Dee Williams had helped them. And in the process of that funeral service, Matt said, if I died right now, there's not a living soul 
that would be able to stand up and say anything about me. And so in the moments of that funeral, he gave his life to Jesus. He was 38 years old. I had prayed for him for 20 years. 20 years I had prayed for him. I tell everybody, pray for Matt, pray for Matt. There must have been people all over the world praying for Matt. He didn't have a ghost of a chance. He didn't know it. But he was converted in such a powerful way. From that moment on, he gave his life to Jesus. Never had another smoke out of his... He was almost a chain smoker and was a heavy drinker. Never drank again. Never smoked another cigarette. And started having a Bible study at Gunner Air Force Base. And in the process of that, he came to his dad and said, I want... I think I've been called to the ministry. He said, son, you don't have to go to the, in the ministry to serve Jesus. You can be a programmer at the Air Force Base. He said, no, Dad, I think I feel called to the ministry. Matt sold everything they had, his home and everything, and pulled out of our driveway, pulled in a little U-Haul-It truck. He went to Asbury Seminary. He'd gotten his four years in the Navy. And a few months, maybe a half a year, I got a letter from Matt. And he said, Dear Mom, I want you to know, I thought you'd like to know I have aced Greek and Hebrew. And I knew only God, only God could take a crazy boy Mixed up kid, on top of the world, spending his money like there's no tomorrow, drinking and having parties, love to party. He said, oh, Mom, I love a party, but now I'm having a party with Jesus. And he's been preaching, and we went this past weekend to his church. He invited us down, the two of us. I spoke on Friday night. Walter spoke Saturday morning. I spoke Saturday night. Walter spoke Sunday morning. And he introduced us like we were the evangelists that had come in. (laughs) So in the midst of that weekend that just happened, I want to tell you I praised God for one more time to see the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people. Don't give up. That's what I want to say to you in closing. But if you do not have that power, it's just as close as breathing. You just surrender. You give everything you have to Him. And He will fill you with such power and strength that you'll be able to make it. Just don't give up. Oh, he's got something wonderful ahead for you. Believe it. Trust him. You're not old. It's, you're not dead yet. I don't know how much time I've got, but I want to tell you, friends, I'm going to praise Jesus with boldness and let people know I love him. I love Jesus, and I'm not ashamed of the gospel or him.